This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ryan Driscoll-Tate, and our guest today is Saren Houston. She's an assistant professor of geography and international relations at Mount Holyoke College, and she's the author of a new book called Imagining Seattle, Social Values and Urban Governance. The book's out now through the University of Nebraska. Saren Houston, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So, Sarah, before we begin, uh, why don't you just take a few minutes to tell listeners a little bit about yourself and how you became a geographer? Sure. I have a longstanding fascination with how people understand themselves in relationship to each other and to places. And I attribute much of this curiosity to growing up in rural northern Vermont in a community where many people work with the land and through this engagement have cultivated a profound sense of community and place. Um, I'm also endlessly interested in how the stories we tell can enable or constrain social change. So it's not surprising that I'm drawn to ethnographic research about narratives, people, and place. Um, My pathway into the academic study of geography was largely happenstance, as I think it's the case for many people. Um, My first year at Dartmouth College, I took a physical geography course because the professor was a graduate school friend of a family friend. And the class fulfilled my science distribution requirement. Um, and although physical geography didn't end up becoming my focus, I really loved learning about how geographers think. Um, the concepts of space and place and scale, they just made so much sense to me. They provided language for my own interpretations of human environment relations. And so my sophomore year in college, I declared my major in geography and enthusiastically dove in. Um, Years later, um, once I decided to attend graduate school, I considered other fields, but found myself drawn back to geography, Um, and I earned my master's at the University of Washington in Seattle and the PhD at Syracuse University. Um, Now I am an assistant professor of geography and international relations at Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. So how did you come to write this book, Imagining Seattle? What was the inspiration behind it? Well, my research in the Pacific Northwest started with my master's thesis, which examined how mixed-race households in Tacoma, Washington, which is a city just south of Seattle, um, perform and perceive race and space. I was particularly interested in what I called spatial stories um, that the households shared as they navigated racialization and racism within their homes, their neighborhoods, their city, and their country. I learned volumes through this research about the many ways that race and space matter, And from that project was prompted to think more about the structural factors that influence experiences in and representations of places. And so this led me to thinking about placemaking and how institutions strive to actualize social values 
through particular policies, practices, or processes. And since I lived in Seattle during my master's research and consequently saw and heard a lot about how progressive the city was, um, it <laughs> yeah. made sense to dig deeper into these themes for my dissertation. I knew I wanted to examine sustainability as a social value within Seattle city government because the messaging about Seattle as a leader in green was ubiquitous. Um, and the focus in my book on the social values of creativity and social justice emerged primarily through interviewing city employees and community leaders, attending meetings and trainings, and spending hours in the municipal archives. And so through this research, I came into this focus on the translation of sustainability, creativity, and social justice from abstract value into tangible practice within Seattle's urban governance. Um, And in terms of writing a book, that came about because an editor from the University of Nebraska Press reached out to me as I was just starting my fieldwork, actually and asked if I'd be interested in turning my dissertation into a book. Uh, We kept in touch over the years, and he mentored me through the book proposal and contract process. Uh, So I spent a lot of time after the dissertation was done to refine it and revise it and further develop my ideas, and to hopefully make the text more legible for a broader audience. And the outgrowth of all of that is Imagining Seattle. You know, since place is so important in this story, Could you situate Seattle for our listeners in place and time within the context of this book? Absolutely. Um, I'd like to do that in two primary ways. First, with some demographics, and then with a few narrative portraits from interviewees. So as many listeners probably know, Seattle is the largest city in Washington state. When I did my fieldwork there in 2009, the population was just over 600,000. By the 2018 census, the population of the city was nearly 745,000. Um, The racial demographics have stayed relatively stable over the last decade, with about 69% of the residents self-identifying as white, 14% as Asian, 7% as Black, 6% as two or more races, and less than 1% as Indigenous and Pacific Islander. Uh, The median household income in Seattle was just over 66,000 when I did my fieldwork, and now that median household income is nearly 80,000. Home values have also followed a similar upward trend. In 2010, the median home value was 379000 Now it is $713,000. Um, Seattle is known as a well-educated city with over 60% of the population holding a bachelor's degree or higher. And just for comparison, about 30% of the population in the U.S. has a bachelor's degree or higher. Uh, so these numbers are certainly one way to situate Seattle. And I also think, though, the portraits that interviewees themselves painted about the place are quite illuminating. So, for example, when I asked Geneva, um, a longstanding employee, city employee and self-identified person of color, uh, what draws people to Seattle, she replied, quote, we're the portal to Asia. We're also the Microsoft capital of the world. So it's a creative haven. It's gorgeous. And there are enough people of color here to make it interesting, end quote. Um, accenting some other facets of the city, Derek, a self, uh, city employee who self-identified as white, stated, quote, We don't really have a lot of poverty here. We have some poverty here, but it's not a crushing poverty like you have in other places. I would say it's actually relatively prosperous, end quote. And then Lance, who worked in economic development and self-identified as a Black man, summed up the economic status of Seattle much more bluntly. He said, quote, Seattle is a rich town. It's got some of the largest corporations in the world here, some of the richest families in the world here, end quote. And tellingly, Lance also noted that the people of color who live in Seattle are usually, to use his words, 
upwardly mobile, middle-class people who speak big-time Caucasian and have relatively good rapport interracially. So Lance's reference to speaking big-time Caucasian signaled to me how whiteness shapes social power, codes, and relations in Seattle. Um, So when I situate the city, I consider the stories that people tell about how they experience and imagine Seattle alongside the demographics of the place. Wow. You know, there's so much to unpack there. So I want to start off with the idea of urban governance. Um, It's in the subtitle of your book. Quickly for our listeners, what is urban governance and who's responsible for it? So following Gupta, Veris, and Jaffe in their book, Geographies of Urban Governance, I described urban governance as the process of governing and managing urban space via distinct actors, networks, negotiations, and institutions. So with that in mind, I think about how power relations, formal and informal rules, decision-making, financing, how all of these come to bear in the practice of governing. Many different stakeholders participate in urban governance. My book focuses on city and county employees, community leaders, and people working in nonprofit and for-profit organizations. Um, Urban governance is continuously unfolding. It's not a linear or singular process, and instead it's quite contested. Uh, So different fields tend to emphasize different aspects of urban governance, from the types of participation of residents to financial distributions to the cultures of decision-making. As a geographer, I paid particular attention to questions of place and scale and spatial relations as I sought to think through how abstract values assume materiality within Seattle. And then in response to the question, like, who is responsible for urban governance? Well, I mostly focus on city and county employees and how they govern and therefore constitute urban governance. Uh, More generally, I think my research underscores that we all make the city just as it makes us. And Claudia Castro Luna, who is Seattle's first official civic poet, wrote a poem entitled The Corner to Love, which I think captures this relational quality. And she writes, quote, Maps in this city number in the thousands, unique and folded neatly inside each citizen's heart. We live in the city, and the city lives in us, unquote. And I find that this poem really eloquently describes how and why urban governance matters yeah, to urban dwellers. Right. Could you talk a little more about status-seeking and the history of status-seeking in Seattle as it relates to image creation and how this is all connected to urban governance? How does this all work together? Yeah, Absolutely. So for me, if we think about urban governance as a process of governing and managing urban space, I found that it was helpful to delve into the city's history to better understand our current moment, Um, because clearly decisions and practices were not happening in a vacuum. So I wanted to dig into some of these antecedents. Um, I couldn't, of course, address all the many dimensions of Seattle's history. So I highlighted some um, prominent aspects of past race relations, urban spectacles, and economic development efforts and to show how these set the stage for the current engagements with social values. Um, And through this work, I suggest that there's been this consistent focus on trying to secure Seattle's place in the pantheon of global cities, um, and then a concurrent effort made to distance ties between Seattle and provincialism. And in this case, provincialism refers to a perceived narrow focus on local happenings at the expense of engagement with broader cultural, political, or economic activities. Uh, And I found this anxiety about Seattle being labeled as provincial holding a lot of power because as geographer Tim Cresswell writes, quote, place suggests simultaneously a geographical location and a position on a social hierarchy, end quote. 
So in other words, if Seattle is provincial, if it's too focused on small town ambience of city neighborhoods and ignorant of wider trends, then it will lose its assumed status in the hierarchy of reputable and powerful cities. So this concern about provincialism has really compelled a lot of material and discursive investment in the stated global relevance of Seattle. Um, I want to give you just talk a little bit about the 1999 World Trade Organization WTO ministerial meetings to illustrate how this focus on status has shaped Seattle and its urban governance. Um, so city employee Sebastian explained, and I love this quote, quote, the leadership just definitely brought the WTO here as we're a world-class city. It was kind of like the World's Fair. Come here. We are the city of the future, end quote. Um, and so the business elites and city government, they really believed that the forecast that hosting this international trade meeting uh, would assure Seattle's status as a global city rather than a provincial one. Uh, yet the meetings did not unfold as city officials and business leaders intended. Um, on the contrary, as many listeners probably know, uh, from November 29th to December 5th, 1999, Seattle commanded international attention as members of the Seattle Police Department clashed with anti-globalization protesters who were opposing the WTO meetings. And these confrontations between the SPD and estimated 40 to 60,000 pro protesters resulted in the use of tear gas and rubber bullets, widespread arrests, imposed curfews and no protest zones, the calling in of the National Guard, and the declaration of a state of emergency for the city. So the Battle of Seattle, as the confrontations were called, uh, raised a lot of questions about the city's ability to maintain and protect free speech and the right of assembly. Uh, the clashes tarnished the city's reputations, uh, produced a host of lawsuits, and resulted in significant financial burdens through property damage and the loss of consumer business. Um, and interestingly, subsequent evaluations of what uh, happened indicated that the promotional fervor of Seattle as a meeting site overshadowed deliberate decision-making. So if we're thinking about how status-seeking and image creation inform urban governance, the choice to host the WTO ministerial meetings and the violent responses to the protests showed how the desire advanced by city business elites and bureaucrats to be seen as world-class absolutely overshadowed good governance practices and led to very profound impacts as a result. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you say social values are permeating urban governance, and you use three examples uh, in the book that I want to get to in a minute. But before we do, uh, could you talk more generally about that, how social values influence uh, urban governance and, and policy? Sure. So what I mean by social values informing governance is that the process of governing, you know, the decisions made about land use, policy creation and implementation, or budget budgeting procedures, for instance, these are actions and practices completed by people. So people bring their ideals, their biases, their proclivities, their socializations to their work. So consequently, working to actualize social values such as sustainability, social justice, and creativity unfolds through this very human system of governing and is, in, is very much informed by human perspectives. And so it might, this shows me that it's probably unsurprising that I found racism and classism embedded in the architecture of many of the programs and policies that I examined. And I've wanted to draw attention to this because I find it detrimental when the naming of policies as progressive precludes us from critically examining the associated practices. Uh, and I also find that seemingly progressive policies can mask in inequities. So 
So they really demand our uh, thoughtful analysis, in my view. Um, and so when I, you know, acknowledging how individuals shape the translation of social values from concept to practice within urban governance can help remake these processes and lead to closer alignment between the abstract and material values. And this speaks to a theory of change that city employee Sierra also describes. She said, quote, shifting us away from the idealized view that we have of ourselves to be one that takes into consideration the outcomes that we are creating as a community and as a city is vitally important. And then she continues, quote, it's not really trying to make people feel bad about being unaware Seattleites. It's to actually try to enliven or engage people because the next part of the narrative is we could change this. You know that thing, that vision in our head, that idea of who we are, we could actually be working to achieve that. Would you like to join us? Wouldn't that be exciting? End quote. And I personally find such an approach to social change quite enlivening. Um, and it is one that really centers this interweaving of values and governance. Yeah, yeah. Those are great quotes. And so I want to begin with sustainability, which is one of the social values you talk about in the book. What does sustainability look like in Seattle? Um, what are the big initiatives that we should know about? So of the three social values that I analyzed, sustainability was the most visible one during my field work and my years living in Seattle. Um, it's cropped up in everything from the city brand of the Emerald City in 1982 to the pervasive promotional materials that highlight the lush biophysical landscape and the environmentalism of Seattleites. And I was not alone in noticing and quite honestly being drawn to uh, the stated green identity and sustainability ethos of Seattle. Um, Derek, a city employee, stated that Seattleites, quote, like that we are a green community. Um, and then in another interview, uh, county employee Emmy added that in the Seattle area, quote, if you're not on the green train, you're missing out, end quote. So, you know, being green and sustainable is a significant part of Seattle's imaginative geographies. So within this context, I sought to understand how sustainability as a value translated into programs and projects. And I was drawn to two prominent endeavors that were happening during my field work. Um, and so specifically, I examined the Way to Go transportation initiative that encouraged families with at least two cars to give up one car for six weeks and track their transportation patterns. Um, and the green fee debate, which emerged in response to a city council ordinance um, banning single-use plastic bags. And I analyzed these two examples to illustrate that the latent class privilege and logics of choice embedded in these endeavors help secure sustainability and greenness as classed aspirations in Seattle. And this was happening despite this kind of very um, seemingly progressive veneer of way to go and the green fee. Um, and I do want to note, though, that there's been a lot of laudable evolution that has happened within the sustainability realm in Seattle's municipal government over the past 10 years. Um, in particular, there's a much more concerted focus on equity now. Um, still, I think it's useful to think about the Way to Go program and the green fee debate because they draw attention to the shortcomings in policy development and implementation that could certainly emerge again, given the very prominent influences of classism and racism. Yeah, I mean, just to get on this point a little bit, um, you talk about sustainability creating exclusive inclusion uh, in Seattle. What do you mean by that? So I take inspiration for my frame of exclusive inclusion from legal scholar Devin Carbato. Um, he examines naturalization as more than a formal process for gaining citizenship within the United States. 
and demonstrates how naturalization is, as he says, quote, a social process that produces American racial identities, end quote. So in continuing on with that, he asserts that racism is an operative lens that determines belonging within the United States and that U.S. identity is consequently distinct from citizenship. So in teasing out this relationship between citizenship and identity, Carvalho puts forward the idea of inclusive exclusion. And so he reads inclusion and exclusion as not opposites, but as entangled and mutually constitutive processes. And through this, Carvalho shows that racial naturalization means that certain people are simultaneously included in the category of citizenship and excluded from U.S. identity or vice versa, hence the inclusive exclusion. So I was really inspired with this idea and translating it into my work, I analyzed the exclusivity, meaning the sort of limited access to a select few of inclusion within the normative discourses of sustainability and greenness in Seattle. And I draw upon what I call this exclusive inclusion to illustrate how boundaries are erected to demarcate and center the eco-conscious and quote-unquote good residents and exclude the quote-unquote bad, non-green practices and people who undermine sustainability endeavors by their representational status or actions. So being seen putting food waste in a compost bin, for example, is more acceptable than gleaning fruit off a city tree. Driving a hybrid car garners greater recognition than driving a 1990s sedan with almost the same gas mileage. So in an effort to include certain Seattleites within the green identity, exclusionary boundaries are drawn. And to my mind, the intertwining of inclusion and exclusion in sustainability practices shows how exclusivity is critical to generating this purported inclusion. Um, And so kind of coming back to the Way to Go program on the green fee, I analyze how the design of these two Uh, focus on choice, even though not all Seattleites have access to the same sets of choices. And so as a result, the benefits of these initiatives and the public accolades for participation in them were mainly experienced by wealthier residents. Um, And so this kind of outcome, I suggest in my book, constrains the realization of sustainability because it positions sustainability as a class-based endeavor that is rooted in exclusive inclusion. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah. You know, one of the sources that you use in the book that really illustrates this point, and it's a fabulous source, it's called, it's a song uh, that's called We're So Green. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that source? Absolutely. Um, so this is a 2013 video titled We're So Green, which was created by Capital Media and Punch Drunk for the Office of Sustainability and Environment. And it was used as a way to engage Seattleites with a climate action plan that was under review at the time. Um, the video was meant to be an opportunity for people then to inspire people to write in and give their feedback on the climate action plan. Um, at just over two minutes long, the video features a multi-age, multi-racial cast and an array of iconic Seattle landscapes, including the skyline with a space needle and Mount Rainier, 
community gardens, the signature dark teal and yellow city buses. Um, it's a cartoon, and it primarily extols Seattle's environmental accomplishments as evidence of the sustainability measures enacted by both individuals and policies. So, for example, the video uses audio like, quote, we make use of the rain, mixed with visuals of residential rain barrels, or we got it wired by using our wires with images of electric buses. Um, and practices and processes that are meant to demonstrate sustainability um, are also in the lyrics, such as we grow our own food, we recycle our trash, we plug in our car. And, the, and so through all of this, the video is promoting a familiar and, and um, purportedly shared green identity for Seattleites, and it's very much presented in a positive light. Uh, to the extent that there's lyrics like, quote, we are Seattle and we're leading the change, uh, which is kind of emphasizing this, what I see as a sort of exceptional and first-in-class kind of mentality about Seattle and um, its sustainability efforts. Uh, and so within also this promotional venue, I also focus in my analysis on lyrics like, quote, it feels so good to be clean, which is a line accompanied by images of wind turbines and solar panels, suggesting a tie with, quote unquote, clean green energy. Um, but this and this emphasis makes sense due to the broader focus on reducing greenhouse gas emissions within Seattle. Um, yet, given the racialized and class histories of the environmental movement, the language of clean also draws forth associations with whiteness. And so, as you can tell, um, it's a short video, but there is a lot to unpack there. I highly encourage people to check it out. It's, it's great for teaching with, too. It really um, draws forth this point about how sustainability is positioned as uh, pertaining to only certain activities and actions that only certain people are doing um, and very much sort of celebrates those folks and, and those activities. Yes, yeah. You, you provide an excellent analysis of it in the book. You know, one of the other social values you talk about in the book, and we've touched on it already, but I think they deserve some time on its own, uh, and that's creativity. Uh, now, some of our listeners might be familiar with the idea of Seattle pitching itself as sort of a hub of, you know, the quote unquote creative class. Uh, but could you talk a little bit more about how creativity plays into all of this? Well, so as you've already hinted, yeah, the primary public definition of creativity in Seattle stems from Richard Florida's concept of the creative class and, you know, an economic class of people described by Florida as catalysts in urban economic transformation because, you know, they supposedly intensify economic value through their creativity, their lifestyle choices, and their participation in the knowledge economy. Uh, according to local lore, former Seattle Mayor Greg Nichols was a charter member of the Richard Florida Fan Club. Um, and it's also perhaps then unsurprising that when I asked a long-term city employee Geneva about, you know, why people like Seattle, she replied, well, Seattle is one of those Richard Florida cities. Um, so within this context, I examine the social value of creativity as linked with economic development in three examples, uh, a cultural district designation, uh, a proposed revitalization plan for Southeast Seattle, and an equitable transit-oriented development project in Southeast Seattle. In these three examples, I consider how creativity assumes materiality when linked to people, products, and processes and show that when creativity is enacted as a process, the potential for equitable outcomes increases. In contrast, when creativity is linked with people, as lauded in the creative class thesis put forward by Florida, we see the likely furthering of gentrification, um, as I demonstrate with the cultural district designation in the Capitol Hill neighborhood. 
and through my analysis of, of that designation, I show that commodifying artists and cultural organizations um, can set the stage for the translation of cultural capital into greater economic capital, but usually to the long-term detriment of artists and other current residents in a neighborhood. Uh, and then I shift into thinking about and examining creativity as linked to products um, and show that this can contribute to the commodification of people as well. Um, I discuss this in my analysis of a retail revitalization plan for Southeast Seattle. Uh, this plan primarily focused on leveraging the cultural and ethnic diversity of the area for retail development and marketing. The stated creative components of this economic development plan included providing passports for the local ethnic businesses and posting advertisements like, I slipped away to Mumbai for lunch today. And every Saturday morning, I go to Vietnam all around Seattle. So in my analysis, I suggest that the passports and the advertisements contribute to an interpretation of residents and businesses in Southeast Seattle as exotic and perpetually foreign, um, a stance that affirms whiteness as the tacit norm. So this enactment of claimed creativity through the representation of people and businesses as products, I suggest, you know, furthers racialized and class disparities. Um, implementing creativity as a social value in economic development through revamping processes, however, I say, you know, I suggest that this can produce more equitable results. And it demonstrates this through an examination of the recent Southeast Seattle Equitable Transit-Oriented Development Project. Um, Equitable Transit-Oriented Development is also called ETOD. Uh, and ETOD, as, as people may know, offers a framework for including many different local residents and conceptualizing and implementing urban development around public transit hubs in order to produce greater equity. So the South East Seattle ETOD process is led by local residents. It includes local ownership and management of real estate. It centers upon inclusive decision-making and it includes a multicultural center, which is designed to be the focal point for community activity and opportunity for the eight largest ethnic and cultural groups living in Southeast Seattle. So I said, what I found through my research is that the ETOD process demonstrates how using creativity to lay a different economic development foundation and decision-making structure can ultimately produce greater social, environmental, political, and economic returns. It also, importantly, may offer a forum for cultivating healing from um, potent legacies of disenfranchisement and exclusion. So just in summary through all this, like including creativity within economic development makes a lot of sense. Uh, the point I emphasize, though, in my book is that it matters how we understand and leverage this social value. Um, when creativity is hitched to certain people and products, the likelihood of perpetuating racialized and class inequities increases. When creativity is embedded within processes, however, I found that more equitable outcomes can arise. Yeah, yeah. And it, you know, the, interestingly enough, the, the big social value um, that you talk about as having actually have been the most successful uh, at turning abstract ideas into practice uh, is social justice. Um, you know, how so? I mean, what's worked um, with that? Yeah. So, you know, um, I was really inspired by the Race and Social Justice Initiative, the RSGI, um, and it became the focal point for my analysis of social justice um, in Seattle. Uh, so the RSGI was launched in 2004. And uh, while many cities have held dialogues about race and racism, uh, Seattle is purportedly the first city government to tackle directly the systemic reproduction of racialized inequities 
in institutional racism through citywide capacity building, policy changes, shifts in departmental practices and expectations, and the implementation of equity filters. Um, significantly, the RSJI has persisted through different mayoral administrations and has become ever more embedded within Seattle's urban governance. So due to all this, I found it a really useful site for examining where and how a municipal government understands and enacts social justice. Uh, so in my book, I discuss two primary facets that enable the RSJI to gain traction and to have impact. Um, these are the structure of the initiative itself and specific policies and programs. In terms of structure, when I did my research, the RSJI employed a multi-tiered approach. Uh, this included a strategy team within the Office of Civil Rights that managed the initiative and provided citywide support a 40-person strong core team made up of employees from throughout city government that planned and conducted capacity building exercises and shared information about new developments within city government, a sub-cabinet made up of department supervisors that offered leadership within departments, and a network of department-level change teams who further coordinated the development and realization of the RSDI. So this framework of strategy team, core team, sub-cabinet, and change teams facilitated the diffusion of the RSGI throughout uh, Seattle city government, which is a large institution that comprises nearly 10,000 employees. Um, and the structure also helped ensure that all city employees were participating in the initiative and that departments were engaging with the work. Um, so that's sort of the structure piece that really enabled the RSJA to work quite effectively. Um, and then there were many specific policies and practices um, that were developed by the RSGI and brought to fruition through this initiative. Uh, in my book, I discussed some of those, including the transformations in the neighborhood planning processes, um, capacity building trainings for municipal um, employees, the development of equity filters, and the language translation policy. Um, so to give a sense of just how these endeavors revealed social justice in action, I thought I would share a little bit more details about the equity filter for the city budget. Uh, in 2007, then-Mayor Greg Nichols asked a group of people to craft a procedure that could produce greater equity within the city budget. Um, there was a very noted need to understand department requests, resource allocation, and the overall equity of the city's finances. Because, as Nichols said, quote, all of us who work in city government have a role to play in achieving race and social justice for everyone, and the budget process is central to this effort, end quote. So in response to this mandate, um, an RSGI team created what they called a budget filter, a set of two questions that must be answered for each line item to ensure that city employees consider how financial decisions further or alleviate race-based disparities, and institutional racism. So the filter asked, one, how does this action accomplish the Mayor's Race and Social Justice Initiative? How did you determine the reasoning for your response? And two, please identify any unintended consequences from this proposal. The RSGI core team then developed a toolkit to help people understand how to use and respond to this budget filter. Uh, the filter was first used in the 2008 budget rounds and actually continues to guide budget decisions now. Um, the process for implementing the filter was not entirely seamless. Um, as Lila, another city employee involved in this effort, shared with me, 
that, uh, quote, some of the budget analysts weren't as diligent. They were just, you know, whatever in the first round of the budgeting. But uh, notably, people paid attention when budgets were rejected and resources were not allocated as desired when the filter questions were not answered. So to my mind, sort of shifting budgeting constitutes this venue to unsettle whiteness because resources were no longer principally allocated to the constituencies that advocated the most locally or campaigned the most actively on their own behalf. Um, Instead, resources are spent in ways that bring about greater equity for all residents of Seattle. So I, you know, uh, highlight this as a notable example um, of translating the value of social justice from concept into actual practice. So when you talk about unsettling whiteness um, just now, but also in the book, um, so so what do you mean and, and how has that worked in practice in the city? Yeah, so I use the frame unsettling whiteness to underscore one key reason I think the RSJI has been particularly successful. And so in my research, unsettling whiteness refers to intentionally disrupting the normative power of whiteness, which reproduces racial hierarchies, and develop system structures and stances that principally benefit white people. Um, the word unsettling further invokes the personal discomfort that many white people feel as their implicit power and privilege are identified and challenged. Um, recognition of individual complicity and in systemic racism can be quite unsettling. Um, and so I use this term unsettling to speak to the emotional responses Seattleites had as they realized the popular imaginative geographies of Seattle as a progressive city did not fully match up with lived realities. You know, the impacts of racism are as profound and familiar in Seattle as they are in any other city, for instance. So altogether, what I was trying to capture in this phrase, unsettling whiteness, was both the structural practices undertaken through the RSGI to upend the centrality of whiteness within Seattle's urban governance and the challenges advanced by the RSGI to white fragility, which, as Robin D'Angelo explains, refers to white people's assumption and often expectation of racial comfort in all settings and the minimum tolerance for racial discomfort. So but given how whiteness is built into the normative practices, policies, and procedures of daily life in the United States, unsettling whiteness has been quite crucial for actualizing the goals of the RSJI. Uh, As part of that, the RSJI does not blame current white individuals for the historical establishment of systemic racialized advantages. At the same time, it does not allow white people to opt out of recognizing contemporary personal responsibility for and involvement in these systems. So through employing racial equity toolkits, building capacity within employees, focusing on cross-sector and cross-rank involvement, and foregrounding a systematic and systemic approach to racial equity, the RSGI was able to bring these principles into action. And so what, what I found was that city employees, they've become more educated about anti-racism and white privilege and structures of power and have been very motivated and required to recraft urban governance through a racial justice and equity lens. Um, and so these are some of the practical ways, along with the examples I just spoke about a moment ago, that the unsettling of whiteness has unfolded. Um, and I just want to add that I suggest in my book that the context of institutional racism and legacies of persistent disparities mean that unsettling whiteness could have profound and positive impacts for cultivating social justice more generally, not only in Seattle. And of course, what that looked like would vary based on places and policy applications, um, but I think it's important to notice that 
through implementing practices for unsettling whiteness, um, the RSJA has been able to show how institutions can shift norms and push employees to evolve and grow, uh, which thereby expands the experience of equity um, through and within urban governance. Right, right. You know, Sarah, one of the things I always like to ask people when they're working on a big project like this is, you know, what surprised you the most? Well, admittedly, um, when I set out to conduct this ethnographic work with city government in Seattle, I anticipated a profound gulf between myself as an outsider and researcher and the people working within the system. Uh, I was very surprised, though, with how much I enjoyed interacting with and learning from city employees and how I could actually easily envision myself as part of many departments. Um, And in particular, as you probably can tell, I was deeply inspired by the level of thoughtfulness, intentionality, dedication, and commitment evident, especially with the people working in the social justice field. And the level of insight and discourse within many of the meetings and trainings and interviews surpassed anything I had encountered before in other places of work, um, encountered much of the literature about the lip service paid by institutions to social justice. So, Of course, there is much more to do, and Seattle is by no means free of disparities and discrimination. I do just want to emphasize, though, that I interacted with people doing really serious work on this front in ways that still inspire and sustain me. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the great parts of the book, and I also think it's one of the great things you brought to this interview, right, is that, you know, showing your interactions with people, that this is a very human story. So, Saren, you know, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we go, I just have to ask... You know, what are you working on next? Well, so for the past few years, um, alongside writing my book, I've been researching sanctuary social movements and policies in the United States uh, with my team of undergraduate research assistants. Uh, So we've published articles and book chapters about the sanctuary social movement and sanctuary policies. We've also created a story map about these policies. And I'm currently working with an RA on an entry about the new sanctuary movement for the World Religions and Spirituality Project. Um, I'm also in the early stages of a new project on climate change and human migration. Uh, um, I've had challenges accessing my intended field site, so that project is evolving. Um, And within this shifting terrain, I'm really interested in the meaning and modes of knowledge production about these issues, um, how different people define and inhabit places experiencing the impacts of climate change, um, how cultural identities persist through time and space, and and how responsibility in terms of climate change and resettlement is understood and enacted. Um, So those are kind of the two primary sets of projects I'm working on right now. But if if anyone's interested, um, I did just launch my own website, which is very exciting for me. Um, And so people can learn more about my work, both um, my scholarship and as well as my teaching um, at sarindhouston.com. That's S-E-R-I-N-D-H-O-U-S-T-O-N, all lowercase.com. Excellent. So everyone go and check that out, SarenHouston.com. You can see more about her work there. Uh, Saren, thank you so much for joining us. And we really do hope to have you back again soon. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Brian, for the invitation and for, for your great questions. It was really wonderful talking with you today. Of course. And we'll catch up with you again soon, okay? Thank you. You too. 